and uh, old friends with us this morning as we continue in worship, I would ask you to turn with me in God's Word to the Gospel of John as we pick up again in John chapter 3, focusing on the second half of verse 16. John chapter 3, verse 16. John chapter 3, verse 16. Let's read for context verse 16 through 21. Let us hear God's Word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Amen. Let us seek the Lord's help as we come to the preaching of his word. If you would bow with me, let us unite our hearts and pray and ask the Lord's help. Our Father in heaven, you are magnified in the weakness of men. You have chosen to glorify Yourself together with Your Son and Your Holy Spirit by saving sinners in such a way that we have nothing to boast in in ourselves. That You have appointed the way of salvation through us simply receiving all of the blessedness that is in Your Son. Father, we stand before You this morning as beggars, each and every one of us, whether we recognize it or not. All of us are spiritually bankrupt by nature. We are full of corruption. As Your Word teaches us, the poison of asps is on our our tongues, our throats are an open grave. There is nothing good in us. Not even an inkling to seek God. And yet, Father, You have given Your Son to accomplish redemption for us including the gift of the Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts and make us alive and cause us to trust in Christ to receive all the blessedness of union with Christ. Father, we as Your people this morning confess that this is of Your doing, not ours. That we did nothing to coerce You to love us in this way. There was nothing lovely in us of Your own freedom You chose to bestow Your love sovereignly upon us to do for helpless sinners what we could never do for ourselves. To redeem us from our sins through the life and the death and the resurrection of Your Son so that we might be able to say with this verse that we have confidence that we shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
Father, how we long for the hope of glory. How we long for the hope of heaven. We have seen and tasted here on earth that the Lord is good, but Lord, we cannot imagine how we will see and taste that the Lord is good in heaven. We pray, Father, that as we think upon Your grace to us in granting us belief in Your Son, that we would revel in Your goodness, in Your mercy, in Your undeserved favor that You have shown to us. Father, help us to be those who offer Christ freely to sinners and plead with them to believe in the only begotten Son of God. We pray, Father, that You would give us Your Spirit this morning, that He would be our teacher, that He would illuminate His Word to our minds and our hearts, that He would give us and grant us understanding. Father, we pray for attentive minds, affectionate and warm hearts. Lord, we pray for wills that are enlivened by Your grace to, to do and to live for Your good pleasure. Father, work all of this by Your grace through faith in Your people, we pray. We ask that You would draw near to us, that You'd be our help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we pick up this morning on John in John 3.16, slowing down uh, quite a bit more than I usually do, simply to spend time to unpack this famous verse, which is very simply the Gospel in one verse. John 3.16 is the concise Gospel that sinners must believe in order to be saved. And last week, we focused on part A of this verse, the first half, which if you remember our focus, John in the first half brings to the forefront what God, apart from us, has done for sinners. It is the Father's uncoerced, undeserved, and unmerited love that gives His beloved Son to this sinful world for their salvation. That is something God did without our consultation, without our permission. Out of sheer grace, He demonstrates His love in the giving of His Son. But now the second half, part B of verse 16, highlights the human side of that, the human response side, and highlights the human response, what the human response must be to that demonstration of God's love if we are to become beneficiaries of the blessings of Christ. Namely, the response of believing the Gospel. And so, mark this very clearly, and I'll mention this in our our doctrine section, According to John 3.16, what sinners need to have impressed upon them is not only this is what God has done for you. Now don't get me wrong, sinners need to hear that. They need to hear of the glories of Christ's life and His death and His resurrection. But sinners also need to hear and God commands men everywhere to repent and believe the Gospel. Because as Puritan Thomas Watson said, a medicine, though it be ever so sovereign, if it is not applied, it will do no good. And so what I want to focus on this morning from the second half of 16 is this requirement to believe the Gospel. Okay, So if you have your Bibles, have them open to John 3. We'll be focusing on the second half of 16. John says, for God so loved the world 
that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes... Okay? Now let me just... I'll just do this here and I'll get a technicality out of the way, okay? Your English translation probably says whoever or whosoever believes. Okay? Now, you all know me. I know most of you. You know what our church believes about particular redemption and the sovereignty of God and particular redemption and things like that. We need to be very clear. We should have no problem with saying that whosoever believes in Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. Right? That's the free offer of the Gospel. That Christ is a Savior so strong and so full of redemption that every single person who trusts in Him will be saved. And so you can and should tell your neighbors and your friends and everyone you meet, if you trust Christ, you will find Him to be a dependable Savior. Okay? However, for the sake of being faithful to you as your pastor and teaching you as accurately as I can, I need to make a comment here. There is a Greek word that means whoever or whosoever. And that Greek word is not found here in the Greek text of John 3.16. I know to to toy with any verse is big, but to toy with John 3.16 is going to raise some eyebrows. Um, Literally, John says God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that all who believe in Him, or if you want to be even more literal, all believing ones in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And now that might sound to you kind of like a distinction without a difference. I mean, what's the difference? Whosoever or all believing ones. But the significance of John saying that all believing ones shall not perish is that his emphasis here is not so much on the whosoever aspect, even though that's true, but his emphasis is on the necessity of the sinner to believe the Gospel. When he says all believing ones shall not perish, he means only the believing ones shall not perish. And so he's highlighting for us not so much here the free offer of the Gospel, but rather the duty of sinners to respond to God's love by receiving the Gospel by faith, lest they perish. Just just think about that. We, We can recite this verse so glibly. Heaven and hell are in this verse. Eternal life and eternal death under the wrath of God are in this verse. And John says that it is the act of believing that distinguishes the air of heaven from the air of hell. And if that's true, that believing in Christ is what makes that difference, then it is of paramount importance that we understand what it means to believe in Christ. And that's what I want to focus the majority of our exposition on this morning, is answering that question, what is true saving faith? And I want to address that question both positively and negatively. Because the Bible itself recognizes that there can be faith that is not saving faith. And in fact, you remember, we just saw an example of that at the end of John chapter 2 when John records for us that many believed in Christ when they saw His signs. But John then says, but Jesus did not entrust Himself to them because He knew what was in man. So let me open this up just for a bit this morning. There are three elements that comprise true saving faith in Christ. 
And all three elements must be present for it to be saving faith. And I'm going to describe these in the terms that the Reformers used. I'm not making up anything new. I'm simply drawing from our, uh, from our heritage from the Reformers. Three elements that comprise true saving faith. The first element is what the Reformers referred to in Latin as the notitia of faith. Or the content of faith. Okay, I'll, I'll try to explain the Latin so that we're not just left guessing on what these words mean. The content of faith. Think about it. Faith must always have an object upon which it is believing. Right? We don't have faith in our faith. We have faith in something. And therefore, to believe in any object, you must first what? Know something about it. You can't believe in something that you don't know anything about. So believing in Christ... uh, is not a, a, an ignorant, blind leap of faith just kind of jumping into the abyss of the unknown. Rather, the call to believe the Gospel is a call to put our faith in the person and work of Christ as they are revealed to us in the Scriptures. And so Romans 10.14, Paul says, "...how then shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed, and how can they believe in Him of whom they have not believed?" heard. Faith begins at least with an elementary understanding of the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what He has done for sinners in His life, death, and resurrection. As Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. However, I said I'm going to address this both positively and negatively. However, mere knowledge of the facts of Christ While it is an indispensable part of saving faith, it is not saving faith on its own. After all, you think about it, there are millions who have heard the truth of the Gospel and the good tidings of Christ and they have rejected them because they dislike them. We're going to see next week, Lord willing, verse 19, where John says, this is the judgment or the condemnation Light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Sinners can have the light of truth shine upon them and then choose to shut their eyes to the light. James says to his readers, you believe that God is one and you do well. But then he says, even the demons believe and shudder. And so, even demons know truth about God, and even in their case, they can't deny that it's the truth, and yet they are not saved by that knowledge. And so, saving faith begins with a knowledge of Christ coming into the understanding, but it must go further. That brings us to the second aspect of saving faith, and it's what the, the Reformers called ascensus. And you can hear in that word, our English word, ascent. We must not only have knowledge of Christ made known to us in the Gospel, but the truths contained in the Gospel must be assented to by us. We must own those truths and believe them to be true. So in other words, it's not enough for someone simply to say in a detached way, well, Christians believe that Christ lived and died and rose again. But rather, what assent is, is saying, I believe that Christ lived and died and rose again. 
That is what assent to the truth is. An affirmation, an agreement, an assent to the truth. However, even this knowledge and assent are not by themselves saving faith. You think of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was an example of this. He says to Jesus at the beginning of their discourse in chapter 3, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Right? So to an extent, Nicodemus was convinced and even assented that Jesus was at least a teacher from God, and yet we know Nicodemus was not yet saved. We see a similar thing with King Agrippa in Acts 26 when um, Paul says to King Agrippa, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And yet, we know that King Agrippa was not a Christian because he says to Paul, Paul, would you make me a Christian in just a little while? And so, knowledge of the truth and assent to the truth are key components of faith, but on their own, they are not sufficient to save. And that brings us to the third and vital aspect of saving faith. This is what the Reformers referred to as fiducia, or trust, confidence. You can hear the word fide in it. This third element, an essential element of true saving faith, is not just bare knowledge. And it is not even mere assent to truth claims. It is a personal entrusting of myself into the care of Christ to save me. Okay? There's a big difference between step two and step three there. Luther said that the sweetness of the Gospel lies in per personal pronouns. When God ceases to simply be God and He becomes my God. And I think, and I, I would suggest to you that probably words like trust, confidence, reliance, dependence are the best words to describe this aspect of saving faith. Not to say at all that we should abandon the language of belief and, and faith in our communication of the Gospel, but those words, just because of the way our, our language is developed, can unfortunately lead to people misunderstanding what true saving faith is today. Right? So for instance, if, if I say, I can say I believe in something that is factually true without that implying any sort of personal commitment. Right? I mean, there are many people who when you, they hear you say believe in Jesus, they think that that's the same thing as believing that Donald Trump exists or something. Also, the word faith is very much misused today. I mean, most of the time when someone says has, have faith or just have faith, basically what they're actually saying is they mean that there's really no good reason to have faith here, but you just need to have faith anyway. Right? Like if your you know, football team has lost you know, 150 games in a row and someone says, you just need to have faith they're going to win this next one. Why? <laughs> there's not any good reason to have faith that they're going to win this next one. Both of those understandings of believe and faith are, are, um, come short and they're contrary to the biblical idea of what faith is. That's why I say words like trust and reliance and um, things like that are probably better words. This third element of true saving faith, is, it is a knowledge of Christ that we assent to as true and trustworthy, but more than that, that we then entrust our souls to Him. 
to care and to save our souls. I'll, gi- I'll give you an analogy. It's like if I'm in the swimming pool and I'm telling my kid who can't swim to jump in and that I will catch them and that I won't let them go under. Okay? My kid knows that I can swim. He can probably even assent to the truth that I'm able to keep him from drowning. But the moment trust in this sense is exercised is when my son actually banks on my words and on my character and leaps and casts himself into my care. Right? It's the moment that he knows I can't swim, but dad can swim, and I believe that he's able to keep me from drowning, and therefore I'm going to entrust myself into his care. That's something of what it is to trust Christ. That's that's why Christ uses such personal language to describe saving faith. All throughout the Gospel of John, we'll see different different words that he uses. John chapter 1, verse 12, the Apostle John describes it, as many as received Him, He gave the right to become children of God. Trusting in Christ is synonymous with receiving Christ. Receiving all that He promises to be for the sinner and welcoming Christ. Much as we would welcome and receive a guest into our home. Or John chapter 6, Jesus says, all who the Father gives to me will come to me. We come to Jesus to receive from His hand rest for our souls, believing that He is the only one who can give it. Or outside of John, the writer to the Hebrews, in chapter 12, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. All of those words of receiving and and coming to Christ and looking to Christ emphasize that this faith is a personal entrusting of all that we are into the care of Christ to save us to the uttermost. And the moment the sinner trusts Christ in that way, there are at least three things happening in his heart. Even though he he or she may not be immediately conscious of them, at least three things are happening when the sinner trusts Christ. First of all, there is a self-renunciation happening. Faith only has one eye, if you will. And faith can only look to one place at a time. And the moment the sinner looks to Christ to save him, he is simultaneously turning away from trusting in himself. In saving faith, the sinner is abandoning his own self-righteousness and he sees that he has no righteousness of his own. And he's fleeing from the unrighteousness of his own heart for a righteousness that dwells in Christ. It's the first thing that's happening is he's renouncing all that he is or has to offer. Secondly, in saving faith, there is reliance upon Christ. The sinner doesn't just turn his back on everything that he is with nowhere to go, but he, he flies away from himself in order to re- rely on the trustworthy foundation of Christ's blood and righteousness. Right? The soul that trembled to die when he thought of, it, of his own sins casts itself at once upon the person and work of Christ. And he swims in the oceans of righteousness that are found in Christ. 
The soul glories in the cross of Christ because He knows that this fountain of blood is able to wash away all my sins and bring me peace with God. That's why Paul calls it in Romans 3.25, faith in His blood. And the third thing that happens in that saving faith is that the sinner appropriates Christ to his heart. He in, in the words of a Puritan, he applies Christ to his heart like a sovereign medicine where he, wherever he sees lack and need and poverty in himself, he begins to draw from the riches and the fullness that is in Christ. John says, all who commit themselves to Christ in this way, all who believe in the only begotten Son of God, the result... They shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. The unspeakable blessings of union with Christ. And I wish we had time. We'll open these things up much more as we go in the Gospel of John. The unspeakable blessings of union with Christ summarized here. First, negatively, they shall not perish. Now, Christian, if that doesn't make you leap for joy, I don't know what's going to. In believing in Christ, you move from a state of wrath to a state of grace definitively in the sight of God. No longer does verse 36 apply to you that the wrath of God abides upon you. We, we sung a line last week, uh, John Newton from Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. Um, it's a line that always gets, gets my wife, gets me as well. Let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When by grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Think about that. The believer doesn't, if he's in Christ, he doesn't fear the unflinching justice of God because Christ has become a curse for him. And he knows that justice was meted out in full upon Christ in my place. And so when justice, having looked at Christ, then looks to me, all it does is it smiles at me and it asks no more because Christ has satisfied it in my place. And then positively, they shall not perish but have everlasting life. That doesn't just mean they'll have eternal existence. That's true of every soul, whether heirs of eternal life or not. Eternal life, in particular in the Gospel of John, is living in the presence and the fellowship of God who is life Himself. It is a life that the believer gets a foretaste of now, but that he cannot even begin to imagine the fullness of that life that awaits him in glory. Peter writes to his suffering exiles, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, And he says to them, though you do not see Him now, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In Christ, the moment the sinner believes and trusts Christ and entrusts his soul to Him, the expectation of glory belongs to the believer. The hope of heaven is secured for him and is laid up for him and his hope of eternal glory draws him towards his eternal home with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
That is the hope that John lays out for all who believe in Christ. Now let us turn from our exposition to our our doctrinal section, our doctrine deduced. Moving into the second, second movement of this morning's sermon. Exposition and now doctrine deduced. And I have three things that I just I want to briefly open up for us that are implied or explicitly stated in the second half of John 3.16. And I'll give them to you as we go. Number one, first point of doctrine deduced. In our sharing the Gospel, in addition to declaring the facts of the Gospel, there must be a pressing upon the unbeliever to believe the Gospel. Okay? So this is kind of a practical doctrinal point. When we're sharing the Gospel, we not only need to make make known the facts of the Gospel, but we also need to press the sinner that they believe the Gospel. And we see this all over in the preaching of Jesus and in the preaching of the Apostles that after they have declared the work of God in Christ for sinners, they don't just say, Amen, let's pray. But rather, having declared the work of God and what God has done, they then turn to the crowds and they say, and sinner, you must repent and trust Christ. People must be pressed that the Gospel is not just take it or leave it. And that it's not just kind of a courtesy that we do to God when we choose to believe it. But rather, the Gospel carries with it a command upon which our eternal souls depend. Now, I know, and I'm sure you know as well as I do, this is precisely the point in evangelism that takes courage. It's one thing to talk about the historical facts of the Gospel with someone. right, And just kind of in a detached way, talk about how Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. Because at that point, most people just think, well, that's interesting for you and good for you if you find meaning in that. But for me, I have a different perspective on life and death. I mean, they might think you're foolish, but they usually don't feel too threatened if you want to believe that for yourself. But it takes courage to look that person in the eye and say to them that no, this is not just my take on life, and I am not just telling you something that I believe as though it makes no difference whether you believe it. I am telling you what God says to all men everywhere that unless you repent and turn to Christ, you will also likewise perish. It takes courage to tell someone that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. Because it's at that point you have just drawn a line in the sand. And you have made very clear to them you are on the wrong side of the line. You are currently on the broad path that leads to destruction and you need to come into the narrow path that leads to life. That will invite fury. Someone told me this last week that they were telling an elderly person about Christ and that at first, the person was kind, they were open, but when it got to the point, the, the, the part where they had to say, you need to repent and believe in Christ, the person's disposition completely changed. And honestly, the response of the Christian to that is, so be it. 
We've been told that the gospel is offensive. The gospel pronounces judgment upon sinners who refuse to repent. And it presents them with but one way to be reconciled with God. Here's here's the thing, Christian. We must never give the impression that Christ is but one seat at the table. Okay? That's what the unbeliever wants. Okay? Um, I mean, as long as Christ is just one seat at the table and He's just one voice, no one cares if you want to choose that way for yourself. By the way, that's how Rome treated the early church. Um, they didn't care if, if they wanted to worship Christ. They just also wanted them to affirm all the Roman gods. And that's what got the Christians is, is, uh, in trouble. It's not simply that they worship Christ, but that they said the other gods are false gods. But once you say to someone that Christ is not just one seat at this table, but Christ owns the table, and there are no other seats, and you either hear His voice or you perish, that's when you invite the sinner's anger. And be that as it may, that is our calling and our duty to walk in the footsteps of Christ who did not shrink back from pressing sinners that they not only needed to hear the good news, but they needed to receive and believe the good news by faith. That brings us to our second doctrinal point. Second doctrinal point, and there's kind of two sub-points on this one. Faith alone is the instrument which unites us to Christ. Okay, Faith alone is the instrument which unites us to Christ. Now, there's a couple important words in there, and that's why I have two subpoints. Is I want to talk about two of those words. The first important word is that word instrument. Right? Faith alone is the instrument which unites us to Christ. Christian, we need to understand theologically how our faith relates to our salvation. Okay, now you don't have to answer this out loud. Kind of a rhetorical question. But if I were to ask you, Are you saved on the grounds of your faith or because of your faith? I wonder, what would you say? If you were being careful and precise, you would say, no, I'm not saved because of or on the grounds of my faith. I'm saved because of Christ and my faith is simply the instrument that receives Christ. Right? That's that's why Paul is very very careful to say that we are saved by grace through faith. Right? Faith is an instrument. Grace comes to us through faith. Not on the grounds of our faith. And, by the way, Christian, even that faith that you exercise is a gift of God itself. And so, when we think of the fact that, well, I've believed in Christ and because of that I have eternal life, We ought not to think as though our faith is the meritorious cause of our being saved. Okay, it's it's not as though God in the gospel said, okay, they were unable to keep my entire law in order to be saved, and so I'm just going to make it a bit easier for them, and I'll give you one thing that you have to do. You have to have faith, and that one work will be the basis on which I consider you as righteous. That's not how we should think of faith. Faith is not at all meritorious. As one Puritan said, faith is a self-emptying grace. Right? Faith doesn't offer anything to God. It's not a closed hand in order to open them up and show God what good things we've brought. Faith is an empty hand that receives 
from God. It is a posture of receiving and emptiness that comes empty simply to receive what God has given to us in Christ. So that's the first thing. Faith alone is the instrument that unites us to Christ. But there's that second important word. Faith alone is the instrument that unites us to Christ. Faith alone is the instrument that unites us to Christ. Notice in John 3.16, John doesn't even mention repentance. He doesn't mention good works. And Christian, this is a place I really think we need to thread the needle. This is a, a challenging aspect, I think, of sometimes Christians to wrap their minds around and walk before God with an understanding of how these things relate. Again, a rhetorical question. If, well, I'll answer it for you. If I asked you, are repentance and good works necessary for salvation? You should respond yes, right? I mean, Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Right? So that, that sounds pretty necessary to me. And yet, John simply says here, all who believe in him shall not perish. And so it's the, the question is, well, which is it? Here's where we need to thread the needle. If we are talking about salvation as a whole process, meaning all that God does in and for the sinner, then yes, repentance and good works are necessary. But if we are talking about what unites us to Christ, which inevitably brings forth repentance and good works, it is by faith alone. Okay? This is where we need to distinguish faith itself from the works that flow from faith. Right? Um, not separate them, but distinguish them. It's very important not to conflate those or you'll very quickly become a Roman Catholic if you don't distinguish between faith itself and the works that flow from faith. Right? And this is why the Reformers, one of their, or I mean at least one of our axioms that's come out of the Reformation is that they said we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Right? That's very good, careful wording. And let, let me summarize what they said in my own words. I'll put it this way. Saving faith, which gives us union with Christ, will certainly produce the fruits of repentance and good works. But it is not those good works which flow from faith that unite us to Christ, but rather faith alone that unites us to Christ. Now, if you think about it, you know that even from experience. Think about, it, think about when you were first converted. When you first trusted Christ, how many good works did you have to offer God? You had none. You came to Christ with nothing but faith. And that faith alone by itself was enough for Christ to entrust Himself to you, wasn't it? Apart from any good evangelical obedience or anything like that. Because none of that's possible unless you're united to Christ by faith. Well, guess what? That hasn't changed, Christian. It's true. If you're a Christian, by the grace of God, by, by virtue of your union with Christ, you will have good works. But those good works are not the basis of what maintain your union with Christ. They are the fruit of that union, not the root of it. Right? We sung 
And I'll quote it right this time. Last time I said that we sung this hymn in a sermon. I don't know where Ken is. And, uh, and we didn't sing that song that day. And Ken said, I don't think we sung that song. But I think we actually sung this today in our third hymn. We said, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on what? Jesus' name. So that's summarizing what I'm saying. Even when we are walking with Christ and our life is full of fruit and good works and we're repenting of sin, even in that sweetest frame, what do we lean on? Not the sweet frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name that I have received by faith. Right? John 15, the the vine and the branches. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, the one who bears much fruit will then abide in me. But rather, he says, he who abides in me will bear much fruit. There's an order there that's important. Uh, J.C. Ryle said, we become Christians by faith, we stay Christians by faith, and we grow as Christians by faith. And therefore, Christian, the upshot of that is that your fight, your primary fight in the Christian life is the fight of faith. Right? Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. The constant refrain is, by faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. And he concludes that whole section by applying it to Christians in Hebrews chapter 12 by saying, Christians, by faith, looking unto Jesus presently and continually, looking to Him who is the author and finisher of our faith, that is the the fight of the Christian life. Looking to Christ to continue His work in us. Realizing that everything good we are is from Him. Received from Him by faith. That He is our justification. He is our sanctification. And so where do we look to grow in those graces? We look to the One in whom they dwell. Number three, third doctrinal point. Faith exalts God and makes God all in all. This one's brief. Faith exalts God and makes God all in all. I don't know if you've ever thought about it or asked the question, why did God choose to make faith the required response to the Gospel? Why not works? Why not something else? And the very simple answer is that faith glorifies God. Faith magnifies that salvation is of the Lord and not of us. If salvation is something that we obtain by contributing something to it and kind of crowning God's work, if you will, then who gets the glory? At least some of the glory. Us, right? If I contribute anything to making my salvation perfect and finished, then God has to share His glory with me. But the constant refrain of the Scriptures is not to us, not to us, but to Your name be glory. Faith, as I've already said, is an empty hand that simply reaches out to receive what God has to give us in Christ. And that humble, impoverished state of just empty hands reaching out glorifies the great giver and glorifies the gift. God will be partaker of no man with His glory and He has designed salvation so that even the one who believes the Gospel cannot say, I have added to it and made it complete. But rather, the humble Christian says, Lord, I have simply received with empty hands what You have graciously given to me. 
It's like Paul says in Romans 3.27, where is boasting? And he says, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, if we're saved by a law of works, that does not exclude boasting. Paul says no, but by the law of faith. Faith humbles man, rightfully so, and exalts the sufficiency of God. That brings us to our application as we come to a close this morning. Our application. And I want to simply close with a question. Perhaps the most important question that could be posed to you this morning. Have you genuinely and sincerely trusted Christ? That's a question I pose to every single person in this room indiscriminately. I know that you know about Christ. I know that you might even assent to the truth about Him, but have you actually entrusted your never-dying soul into the care of the Lord Jesus? Have you renounced everything of self and actually come to a conclusion, I am filthy, I am impoverished, I am needy, but in Christ there is a fullness and I therefore give myself to Him entirely, trusting that by His life and death, a life that I did not live in a death that I did not die, it is in that that I stake my whole eternity. You may have been here, you may be here and you've sat under the preaching for a length of time. You might even be here and perhaps you're in, in membership here at Bethany and you've been able to fool us. You fooled the church. You know how to, you know how to imitate the walk and uh, uh, talk the talk you need to know very clearly you cannot fool God. God knows those who are His. And you might be able to blend in with the crowd in the church here on earth, but that blending in will not work on the last day. The Lord Jesus Himself will separate the sheep from the goats. And so my friend, whoever you are, whether you know that you're outside of Christ, whether you've thought that you are, or maybe you've been secretly knowing I'm not really in Christ, but I need to keep up appearances, the only safety for you is to truly close with Christ now. That's the glory of the Gospel. Because you might be that person, that hypocrite, and you're sitting here and you're first of all thinking, you're thinking, there's no way I could do that. I can't give up the facade. I can't admit that I've been living a lie. That would be so embarrassing to my reputation. And besides, would Christ even receive me? Let me tell you something. First of all, it is far better to be embarrassed and humbled now than to be put to shame on the last day. And secondly, yes, Christ will receive you. Such is the grace of Christ that it extends even to the hypocrites who have unworthily professed His name. His words to you, if if that's you, His words to you are the same as they are to everyone else. Come to Me and I will give you rest. And so whoever you are, whether you're a hypocrite or whether you're someone who has openly stood afar off from Christ, believe in Christ. Draw near to Him. Find shelter in His blood. Find life in His death and His resurrection lest you perish. Don't refuse the heavenly offer of peace and mercy. But, second thing, last thing as we close. 
If you haven't trusted your soul to Christ, and you know in my heart of hearts, by the grace of God, God has opened my eyes to see the glories of Christ, then Christian, glory in the grace of God and give God praise that He deserves. I mean, if you're here this morning and you've renounced all that you are by nature and you feel a real sense of your own spiritual poverty and you've been given a glorious trust in the fullness of Christ, you need to remember, I know it's easy to take these things for granted, that's not usual. Most people in the world are still living in the darkness of sin and they love darkness rather than light and they are proud of themselves. Renouncing what they are is the last thing that they want to do and saying that Christ is the only way I can be saved is on the, la- is the very end of the list of things that they want to own. And so, Christian, if you gladly confess with your mouth this morning that Christ and Christ alone is all I have and He's all I need, bless God for that. Because that's not owing to your own doing. 1 Corinthians 1, it is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's grace that has caused us to differ and grace that has set you on the path that leads to life. And so Christian, as we sing, give God eternal praise that our end is not to perish under the wrath of God eternally, but rather to have now and forever the blessedness of everlasting life with Christ. Christian, keep looking to Christ. As you know, faith is not static. It's not a one-time thing. Those who have believed in Christ are those who are believing in Christ. And so continue looking to Him who is the author and finisher of your faith. Day by day, moment by moment, draw from the oceans of His fullness every moment where you are made more aware of how much lack you have and how, much, how impoverished you are. Remember that there is not a malady that sin has brought upon you for which there is not a remedy in Christ. Christ is God's answer and His medicine for every malady the sinner has. Draw from Christ. Abide with Christ by faith. And glorify God's free bounty and magnify all that Christ is for the believer. Let's pray. Our Father, for all who have never trusted Christ, we pray that they would trust Him this morning. And for all of us who have trusted Christ, we pray that we would continue to look to Him who is the author and finisher of our faith. Father, thank You for John 3.16. We thank You for the revelation of the Gospel that is rooted in the eternal love of God. A love that is incomprehensible to us and beyond and past our finding out why You would love and choose to love loveless sinners in order to make us lovely. We praise You, Father, that You did. And that in love, You predestined us in Christ to the praise of Your glorious grace. That we would become in time 
adopted sons and heirs of the blessedness of Christ by Your Spirit giving us faith, having raised us from the dead spiritually so that we most willingly desire Christ and trust Him for all that He is. Father, we thank You for the work of Your Spirit that has changed us. That has caused that great change that the the Gospel is no longer foolishness to us, but the wisdom of God. It's no longer a stumbling block, but it is power that You have shown to us that Christ is our righteousness and our sanctification and our wisdom. Father, help us as Your people to look continually to Christ that we would fight the fight of faith, that we would keep the faith, that we would abide in Him, that we might bear much fruit for Your glory. We pray, Lord, that You would, Father, that You would help us. We pray again, if there be any who are here who are strangers to the Gospel, we ask that they would be troubled in their hearts and their souls by the decision that is laid before them hearing the threatenings of Your Word that apart from trusting Christ, there is nothing but the fearful expectation of judgment. We pray, Father, that that would plague them for the purpose of leading to godly sorrow and genuine repentance and faith in Christ. Lord, work in the heart of sinners and of unbelievers. Bring conviction and lead to the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ. We pray that You'd bless the remainder of our Lord's Day. pray that You'd bless our time of fellowship and our meal together. pray that You would grant us to be an encouragement to the, the saints that You've given us to live together with here at Bethany. That we would spur one another on to love and good works. Draw near to us, we pray. We pray that You'd be with Gary as he teaches in the afternoon service. and pray that all of us would learn and benefit and that we would go home this afternoon, well fed from Your Word. We thank You for the Lord's Day. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.